Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. As promised, as advertised, we are going to finish the book of Hosea tonight. There are only two chapters, 13 and 14, left in the book of Hosea, but they won't take that long to get through. I wanted to deal with chapter 13 and 14 in a single night because chapter 13 and 14 are almost like a mirror image of the beginning of the book, re-emphasizing the theme one more time. The reason that we went to the book of Hosea, just to quickly review and bring everybody up to speed, is that we had been, well, we started in the book of Genesis, and we made it all the way chronologically to just about two-thirds of the way through the book of 2 Kings, and at that point we ran into Jeroboam II. We're talking about the 8th century BC here, early in the 8th century, and Jeroboam II was one of the succession of terrible kings in Israel, the northern kingdom. And at that point in time, God started sending prophets to Israel to tell them to repent, to turn, or that they were going to be scattered, they were going to be taken out of their land, they were going to go into captivity. And in a couple of occasions, through a couple of prophets, God likened the sort of captivity they'd be going into to the Egyptian captivity. So they understood that it was going to be a form of bondage that they would be going back into. And God sent them the first few prophets, and it was the beginning of God speaking through prophets to Israel nationally, as opposed to individual prophets like Nathan who spoke to David or Samuel or somebody like that. Now he's sending prophets specifically to tell Israel and the leaders in Israel and the kings and the kingdom that what they were doing was in direct opposition to God, his will, and his law. The chief thing that they were doing is that ever since the first of the kings of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, the first Jeroboam immediately took Israel into apostasy and had them worshiping other gods, foreign gods, Assyrian gods, and two calves, two golden calves that were constructed, and then there was an entire priesthood, an entire form of worship that was constructed under Jeroboam, primarily for political reasons, because Jeroboam recognized that since Jerusalem was the place where the worship of God continued in the temple in Jerusalem, that if the people he was now leading started going back to Jerusalem three times a year like they were required to do, that eventually they and the people in Judah were all just going to become one people group again, you know, and be in fellowship again, and he didn't want that. So he created new places of worship, new form of worship, a new priesthood for worship, and he did all of that in the northern kingdom. And successively then, each king in the northern kingdom followed after, followed in the footsteps of Jeroboam. And so as we read about them, as we went through the succession of kings, we saw how often the bad kings were compared to Jeroboam. He did what Jeroboam did. He was like Jeroboam. Up until this guy, Jeroboam II. 
Now, this is right after the time of Ahab and Jezebel, and it was just about as bad as it's ever been in Israel. And God decides to send them prophets. The first of whom we ran into in 2 Kings was Jonah, who's named by name. And then Jonah's contemporaries at this particular moment in time are Hosea, which is why we're reading about him, Isaiah, that huge book of Isaiah is right around this same time, Amos, who really talks about the the inequities, the societal inequities that are going on in Israel, and Micah. Micah, even though he's in the northern kingdom, is mostly prophesying toward the southern kingdom, toward Judah. But all of the prophets say the same basic thing. So as we've been going through Hosea, I have frequently shown you parallel ideas, parallel passages from Isaiah, from Ezekiel, from multiple different prophets, Jeremiah, of course, who all say the same thing, which is that God is angry at Israel, both the northern and the southern tribes. God even calls them two sisters who went down into Egypt. So he saw them as two kingdoms all the way back to Egypt, gave them nicknames, Ahola and Aholabah, and said that even in Egypt, they had started worshiping their foreign gods, committing adulteries against him. And so all of the prophets say Israel is guilty, Judah is guilty. All of the prophets say God is going to punish Israel and going to punish Judah. All of the prophets predict that the northern tribes are going to go out of their land, that they're going to be scattered. But all of the prophets to a person say that God is not done with national Israel. That even though he's going to punish them, drive them out of their land, even though the Assyrian captivity is going to happen to the northern tribes, even though the Babylonian captivity is going to happen to the southern tribes, even though Daniel sees that Jeremiah has predicted that they were going to be in Babylon for 70 years, he then prays to God and God says, I'm going to tell you 70 times seven. I'm going to tell you 490 years of your people's future. And God consistently, through all of his prophets, says over and over again that even though he's punishing Israel, even though they are completely guilty in his eyes, and even though he's going to let the land lay fallow so that it can keep its Sabbaths, even though he's doing all this to them, I just keep emphasizing this over and over again, that every one of the prophets with a single voice say that God is going to collect Israel, regather Israel, bring Israel back to their land, establish them, give them peace and safety from all the nations around them, that they are ultimately going to become the primary nation on the planet. All the nations of the Gentiles are going to flow to them. They are going to have one king, one leader over them. And ultimately, we know that that's going to be Christ, who's going to establish his kingdom and rule from Jerusalem. And that is the consistent testimony of the Bible. Now, when you get into the New Testament, there are no New Testament authors who negate what the prophets have said. In fact, I argue that Paul establishes what the prophets have already said concerning Israel, especially when you get to Romans 9, 10, and 11. That's why we took the time to do Romans Israelology and look at 9, 10, and 11 in some depth. 
What's important to recognize is that all the prophets in the Bible all say the same thing, which is that there is a future for Israel as a kingdom on planet Earth, a physical, genuine, literal kingdom to come, and that Jesus himself did not negate that idea. Rather, when he taught his apostles to pray, he said, when you pray, say, thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He did not in any way negate what the prophets said. Paul never negated what the prophets said. And yet, not a week goes by that I don't run across somebody on the internet or on the radio, because I'm listening all the time, I'm reading all the time, and I run into people who say that now the church is receiving the promises that God made to Israel, the prophecies of goodness that he was going to give to Israel, and that the church now receives that in some spiritual fashion. And so they use the language of spiritual Israel, or true Israel, which is language you don't find in the Bible. Nowhere does any New Testament author ever refer to the church as true Israel or spiritual Israel. That is extra-biblical language. And no New Testament writer ever says that or makes that equation. Instead, the people who say it infer it from completely out-of-context verses. They'll just say, well, you know, not all Israel is Israel completely misquoting what Paul said in chapter 9 of Romans. Or they'll just make a passing reference to the Israel of God and say that's the church. That's Galatians 6, Paul writing again. Or Paul writing about the difference between a Jew that believes in Jesus and a Jew who is only circumcised. He wrote about he is not a Jew that is one outwardly, but one that is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart. And so people grab that and infer from that that a Gentile who has had the circumcision of the heart is thereby a spiritual Jew. And then you just put all those assumptions together, and you rattle them off with no exegesis or context, and come to the conclusion that the church is Israel, and then you just keep going. You just assume that that's an established fact, and then you just keep going. But I hope that what this study has taught you, if nothing else, is that the Bible simply does not talk that way. The Bible says that God is not finished with Israel nationally because they are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because God does not turn from his word or turn from his promises once he says something that is established, and therefore even the fact that Israel rebelled to the point and to the degree where God pushed them out of their land and drove them into captivity, none of that could make God change his love for Israel. And that's important for us, because if God, if you could prove to me that God made an unconditional promise to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then based on their behavior, changed his mind? Well, then I have no hope. I don't know what to do. Because whatever promise he made to me in Christ is dependent on what I do. God could change his mind. I could do something, and God would go, I didn't know he was going to do that. And then I'm out. The people on the Internet couldn't see me flick the top of the podium but that's not the way God is. God, thank God, is consistent all the way through the Bible. His intention, his grace, his promises don't change. 
And from the moment that he made the unconditional Abrahamic covenant, from that point forward, the kingdom was secure. It has to happen. And this kind of ties into some of what we're about to see on Sunday mornings in the book of Matthew, because Jesus is going to speak exactly in line with, in parallel with, what the prophets have already said about Israel. And he's going to condemn them, and he's going to tell them about the time that's coming and the terrible things they're going to have to endure. But at no point does he say, and God's completely done with you, and the kingdom has been given to the church of believing Jews and Gentiles. That just doesn't exist in the Bible, and yet it exists widespread in the theological world. And so I am the anti-church replacement guy. I don't believe in any of that. I don't think it exists anywhere in the Bible. I don't think. I am convinced it doesn't. No, it doesn't exist anywhere in the Bible. That's the way that sentence should go. And because it doesn't exist anywhere in the Bible, anybody who says that to you is making stuff up. They're operating from a system. They're operating from an assumption. And then they're digging through the Bible looking for anything that might support their foregone conclusion. And that's not the way to do theology. Theology should be done by reading what the Bible says and then aligning your thinking with what it says. Make sense? All right, so turn to Hosea 1 real quickly. And we're going to read the first chapter, which is a summation of the whole book. And then we're going to read chapter 13 and 14 and see how the end of the book is the same as the beginning of the book. Hosea 1.1, the word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Biri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. That's Jeroboam the second. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go and take to yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel for yet a little while. And I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it will come about on that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. We talked at length about all that, the meaning of the word Jezreel, that not only was there a tremendous amount of bloodshed that happened in the valley of Jezreel, but that the word itself also means scattered and dispersed. This is the first clue. God names the first child Jezreel because he's going to scatter national Israel. Verse 6, then she conceived again, and she gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Ruhamah. I told you that's the word for compassion, that is the word for mercy, and Lo is the negator, none, no, so no mercy. And the Lord said to him, name her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I should ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah, the southern tribe, and deliver them by the Lord their God, and will not deliver them by the bow or the sword or battle or horses or horsemen. When she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not 
my people. And that's what the word means, my people and not. You're not my people and I'm not your God. And then suddenly verse 10 reverses the whole thing and yet the number of the sons of Israel, though they're going to be scattered, though they're not my people, though I have no mercy on them, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured for number. There are people out there looking for the lost tribes and they'll find some little pocket of people who are keeping sort of semi-Jewish customs and they go, look, we found the lost tribes. It's these 300 people over here. And yet God said it's going to be a tremendous number because that's what God promised Abraham, that his descendants were going to be like the sands of the sea, like the stars of the heaven, innumerable. And so even though they're out of their land, they're going to grow in number. They can't be measured or numbered. And it will come about that in the place where it is said to them, you're not my people in their scattered condition. There it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Okay, now that hasn't happened yet. The first part happened completely. Remember that Hosea is predicting all this before it happened. They're still in their land when Hosea says all this to them. And yet history tells us that that's exactly what happened. They were driven out of their land, and they haven't been back to their land yet. And in fact, they are in that scattered condition at this very moment And as far as they know or anyone else knows, they are not the people of God. As far as anyone knows, they're not the children of Israel. But in that scattered condition, in the place where they are called not my people, in that place they will be called God's people. Now that has to happen. It's as sure and secure as the first part that already happened. The children of Israel have to be found. They have to be gathered. They have to be brought back to their land. Where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God, and the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves, all 12 tribes, one leader, and they will go up from the land, and great will be the day of Jezreel. So, the first half has happened, the second half has not. We're still awaiting the second half. Now, the rest of the book, for the next 12 chapters, God lays out his case against the children of Israel, primarily the northern tribes. And he states his case and tells them how terrifically guilty they are and explains to them why all of this is going to befall them, and it is because of their chasing after other gods. It is for selling themselves in worship to other gods and acting like unfaithful harlots instead of a wife. And that is summarized in chapter 13, so turn there. Chapter 13, one last time, God is going to summarize his case against Israel. Chapter 13, verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel. Ephraim is the primary tribe. Ephraim is the largest of the northern tribes, and it's one of the reasons that the northern tribes oftentimes go by the nickname of Ephraim. Ephraim, however, is also the tribe that is carrying the birthright, reaching all the way back to when Israel, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, leaned on his staff when he was in Egypt, and he had Joseph bring in his two sons that were born to him in Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
And very specifically, Joseph put his oldest boy, Manasseh, at his father's right hand because it was clear that his father was about to hand out the birthright blessing. And his father wittingly crossed his hands and put his right hand on Ephraim's head, the younger. And Joseph objected and said, no, my father, for this is the oldest. And he corrects his son and says, I know what I'm doing. I know, my son, I know what I'm doing. And the birthright goes to Ephraim. So law-giving and the Messiah is going to come through Judah. That's promised in those same set of promises after Jacob, Israel, has given the birthright blessing to Ephraim. He then gives blessings and curses to all 12 of his sons. And when he gets to Judah, he says that law-giving is not going to depart from Judah and that Shiloh is going to come through Judah. So this is why Ephraim has authority within national Israel, and God admits it when he says, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling, he exalted himself in Israel, but through Baal, he did wrong, and the NASB says, and died. That's going to be clarified in just a moment. And now they sin more and more, and they make for themselves molten images Idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. And they say to them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. This form of kissing is a form of worship. The New Testament, the Greek word for worship, translated worship, proskuneo, means kiss toward. We even read, kiss the son lest he be angry. And his wrath is kindled but a little, and then you perish. And so kissing the sun, kissing toward your God, is a form of worship. And here's the problem in Ephraim. They had made these golden calves, and they said, let everybody who sacrifices kiss the calves. So they were sacrificing to the images they had made with their own hands instead of to God. And they were worshiping, kissing the calves. Therefore, They will be like the morning cloud, like the dew that soon disappears, like chaff that is blown away from the threshing floor, like smoke from a chimney. And yet, I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. That's been a primary theme all the way through Hosea. God keeps taunting them about their gods and saying, how can your God save you? You made your gods. What can they do for you? If you have to carry your gods around on your shoulder and they can't speak and they can't walk and they can't do anything, what can they do? They can't save you. And one of the ways that God is using this language of saving right now is they can't save you from me. I am going to punish you. My wrath is coming against you, and they're no help to you. They can't save you. There is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of the drought. You remember that? That while the children of Israel were 40 years in the wilderness, that when they ran out of water, God gave them water from a rock. God provided for them every day manna from heaven. God fed them, clothed them. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their sandals didn't wear out for 40 years. God took care of them through that whole journey. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. 
As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. How often have we seen this same theme? It just comes up again and again. God says, finally, after their journey, after their 40 years in the wilderness, I take them into the land of milk and honey, and I give them pasture. My sheep finally have plenty to eat, and they're safe, and they're secure. And I give them safety from not only the wild animals, but from all their enemies round about them. And rather than thank me, worship me, and recognize that I've done this for them, they become self-sufficient, because that's what people always do. That is the whole history of Israel. You see it especially in books like the book of Judges, where Israel would rebel against God, and then God would send their enemies on them. Then they would cry out to God. God would send them a judge. The judge would lead them and deliver them, send them somebody like Samson, you know, deliver them. And then that generation would stay true to God. But then the next generation would come along that didn't remember all that. And by two generations, they're back in their apostasy and their rebellion again. Time and time again, we see, even in the history of the world and the history of people, that whenever people are safe and secure and okay, they become self-sufficient. And they think they did it. And they ignore God. They don't need God. The example that I have used a hundred times, but I just think it's such a perfect example, is if you just look at the last... 14 years of the United States of America. Planes hit buildings. You've got the Congress meeting to sing God Bless America from the steps of the Capitol. You've got people encouraging prayer from the Capitol. You've got the president and all the dignitaries and everybody going to church services, televised church services, so that we can all see that we are a nation that needs God. It's only been 14 years. Where is that now? It's completely gone. Why? Because we've been safe. We're secure. We're okay. We've been fed. We've been all right. And so now we've got every other social issue that flies in the face of godliness or righteousness. We're living just as, as wildly and rebelliously as we possibly can as a nation, making laws that codify things that God himself said are an abomination. And why are we acting like that? Because we're okay. We're fine. We're all right. Next big tragedy, they'll all be out in the streets going, cry out to God, pray to God. Because that's just human nature. When we're okay, we think we did it. Well, Israel had that very problem. God led them through the wilderness 40 years, brings them into the land of milk and honey, gives them what he refers to as pasture. And once they're in their pasture, they became satisfied, says verse 6. And being satisfied, their heart became proud Therefore, because of their proud heart, therefore they forgot me. So, so, here's God's response. And by the way, this is a response that we in America ought to be heeding, ought to be paying attention to. Since they forgot me, since they became proud, so I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lay in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. There I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me. Do you hear that phrase? 
Your destruction is wrapped up in the fact that you're against me. That's why you're going to be destroyed. That's why you're going to be scattered. Because you're against me. And if you're against God, then, well, he's going to be against you. And he's bigger than you. And he has all the power, and you have none. And he's going to do what he wants to do, and you can't stop him, and you can't change his mind. And he is going to punish. Now, another big theme here that we have to recognize is the same theme that we see in the book of Hebrews. This idea that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He scourges every son that he receives. He is really going to punish Israel because their apostasy is terrible. And because he has all the time in the world, that's a literal statement, he has all the time in the world, then he can punish them for thousands of years and turn his attention to the church and bringing in Gentiles and the church of Jesus Christ. But that's why Paul says in Romans 11 that after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. He's going to turn his attention back to that because he is going to punish them appropriate with their behavior and rebellion against him. But he's going to punish them for the purpose of restoration. Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He doesn't give up on them. And that's good to know. Especially if you happen to find yourself in the midst of chastening. Because when you're in the middle of the chastening, it's real easy to go, where's God in this? Why would you do this to me? And the truth of the matter is the chastening is a direct result of the fact that he loves you enough to correct you the same way that I love my children enough to correct them. If I didn't care about them, I'd be a lousy dad and let them have their own way and do whatever they want. And they would grow up spoiled brats and then rebellious young people. And then they'd end up in jail and hell because I didn't love them enough to correct them. Same thing with God. He is correcting Israel. He is not abandoning Israel. But listen to that correction. I'm going to be like a lion. I'm going to be like a leopard. I'm going to be like a bear. I'm going to rip open their chests. I'm going to devour them like a lioness, like a wild beast would tear them. And it is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me and against your help. In other words, the fact that you are against me is against your help. I would otherwise help you, but I'm against you. Verse 10, where now is your king? Here's God mocking them again. Oh, so yeah, that king that you were so excited to have when you came to me asking for a king. Where's your king? What can he do for you? Can he stop my hand? Where now is your king? that he may save you in all your cities and your judges of whom you requested, saying, give me a king and princes. See, originally Israel was a theocracy. Originally they were ruled by God, God's rule, God's law. God spoke to them, gave them the law, and said, this is how you live as a society. I'm your king. And eventually they rebelled against that after the times of the judges and said, we want a king came to Samuel, we want a king. And Samuel went to God and said, they want a king. And God said, okay, we're going to give him a king, but it's, it's going to be a ruinous king. He's going to take the best of everything, and he's going to tax you like crazy. And, and they went, okay, <laughs> yeah. 
because then we'll be like the surrounding nations. That's what they wanted. They wanted to be like everybody else. They didn't want to stick out you know, as, the, as God's people, that theocracy over there. We want to be like the other people in the area. We want a king. They have a king. We want a king. We want somebody that can lead us in war. We want somebody that looks good, our figurehead. So he gave him Saul. The reason they liked Saul was because he was a head taller than everybody. He looks good as a king. So then God chose a king after his own heart, a young boy tending sheep, the opposite of Saul. And that was the beginning of the southern kingdom's comparative king. You know, whenever there was a good king in the south, they'd compare him to David and say, he acted like his father David. And then David's son Solomon had the kingdom divided during his time so that his son got the southern kingdom Jeroboam, his servant, got the northern kingdom. And then every king in the north was compared to Jeroboam, the bad king. He did like his father, Jeroboam, as opposed to he did like his father, David. So the fact that they even had a king, the fact that they had a political structure that was not a theocratic structure, God resented it because He was their God. He was their king. He was their leader. They wanted to be like everybody else. They said, give us a king and princes. So I gave you a king in my anger. And I took him away in my wrath. The spirit of God departed from Saul. And so he said, I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up and his sin is stored up. This is really interesting language, and I hope that I can express it correctly. One of the reasons that God took Joseph into Egypt, as he told Abraham he was going to do, he told Abraham, your descendants are going to go into a land where they're not known, and they're going to come out a great people, and they're going to come out mightier, richer than they went in. But they're going to serve there for 400 years, and then they're going to come back to this land And he said the reason for that 400-year gap was because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. The Amorites were the people who were living in Canaan at the time. And God was giving the Amorites 400 more years to bring their iniquity against God to its fullness so that when God used Israel to drive out the Amorites, they were not only being judged but rightly judged. And then God uses similar language here. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. Like God's keeping track. God, with each successive king, as the years go by, as their iniquity grows, as their rebellion grows, as their apostasy grows, God is storing it up and storing it up until it sort of reaches critical mass. And then God goes, and that's it. And he brings Assyria down on them. And that's what makes Jonah so very interesting. Because Jonah is not ultimately about guy in a whale, even though that's the way it's told in children's stories. Even though it's not called a whale in the Bible. It's a great fish. But the whole point is that Jonah, at the same time that Micah and Amos and Hosea are prophesying to Israel and Judah, the same time that Isaiah is prophesying to Israel, At that very same time, Jonah, who's actually mentioned in 2 Kings, ends up prophesying to Nineveh, which is the capital of the nation that God is going to use 
to punish, to judge Israel. And their iniquity is building against God. And he sends a prophet to them to cause them to repent, which they do in dust and ashes, sackcloth and ashes, which is astoundingly sovereign that God is making sure that that nation up there, which is a rebellious, Gentile, God-hating nation, he makes sure that their iniquity doesn't rise to the point where he must punish them. He brings them to repentance in order to sustain that nation so that he can use that nation in order to punish national Israel, who he's saying he's going to punish. You know, all these prophecies have to come true. All these prophecies about Assyria. I'm going to bring Assyria down on you. You're going into Assyria. All these prophecies have to come true, but Assyria is getting so bad that God has to do something about it. It sends Jonah. Exactly. Isn't this astounding? This is a God who's in absolute control. But this is how all the prophets kind of weave together. So, I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, and his sin is stored up. The pains of childbirth come upon him. That's language we see a lot. See it in Jeremiah. We're going to see it in Matthew 24. This is language that is consistent to describe God's wrath. That once God starts pouring out his punishment, trials, tribulation, all that stuff, it's described as men walking around holding their stomachs like a woman in pain for childbirth because everybody is under so much heavy oppression, physical pain, punishment. So he uses that same language. The pains of childbirth come upon him. He is not a wise son, for it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. There's a lot of controversy about what that phrase means exactly. Some commentators say that what God is getting at is it's describing Ephraim as like a stillbirth, that while God looked for a son, that what he got was a dead son. Verse 14, now listen to this. Despite all this, despite how angry God is at them, he then asks the question, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol, from the power of the grave, the underworld? Should I ransom them? Notice that in order to get them out of Sheol requires a ransom. And the only person who can pay the ransom is God. And this is one of the reasons that Jesus is referred to as a ransom. Because the only reason that God's people don't end up in Sheol is because a ransom was paid for them. And one of the reasons that God sent Christ to the earth was to act as a ransom for his people. And now God says, shall I ransom them? From the power of Sheol shall I redeem them from death. O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. Turn real quickly, long as we're talking about that. Turn to 1 Corinthians for a second. If that sounds familiar, Paul picks up that exact language and he puts it in the context of the future resurrection which gives us a good clue of what Paul thinks Hosea was talking about at this moment. Here's God talking about redemption, ransom, 
And then if God were to take them out of their graves, if he was to redeem them out of death, then the question that God asks is, oh, death, where are your thorns? Or where is your sting, O Sheol? Go to 1 Corinthians 15. And let's start at verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all die, and we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. One of my favorite verses, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, when this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And now he quotes Hosea, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Isn't that interesting? So as far as he's concerned, the quote from Hosea is a quote of God's ultimate plan of resurrection, restoration, redemption, ransom, at a time when not just we, the church, but Israel itself is going to be raised incorruptible. And when that happens, death, hell, the grave, lose. You get into the book of Revelation, you get to Revelation 20, and you see that death, hell, and the grave are sent into the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and its angels. Ultimately, God is going to sum up all that stuff, destroy all that stuff. It's all going to go into the lake of fire. But if you're bound to go there and you don't end up there, it's because God paid a ransom for you because he couldn't just wink at it. He couldn't just turn the other way. He couldn't just go, oh, never mind. The punishment had to be paid. The law had to be satisfied. His righteousness had to be satisfied. His judgment had to be satisfied. And the only way that can happen is for somebody to take your place and pay the ransom price that you can't pay. And, of course, you know what ransom means. If somebody was to kidnap my daughter, if Jeff kidnapped my daughter, and he wanted something in return, he would write me a ransom note. Say, if you ever want to see her again, send this much money and leave it over here. Pardon me? Please take your daughter, Please take your daughter back. I'll pay you. Anything, you know, and then that's the idea of ransom. And we are sold out to sin. We are slaves to sin. We are bound up in sin. And our only right and justifiable destiny is Sheol, the grave, the underworld, punishment, hell, ultimately the lake of fire. And the only way for us not to end up there but to end up in God's presence is for somebody to satisfy God in a way that we simply can't. And that's the whole point of Christ, is that he comes in as our substitute. He's here as our redeemer, and the way he redeemed us was not only to pay the ransom price but to make himself a ransom. And then he, through his punishment, through his death, through his taking the wrath of God, through the spilling of his blood, paid a sufficient price 
that the justice of God is satisfied and the prisoners go free. So Paul, in talking about a future to come where the perishable becomes imperishable, where mortals put on immortality, he said when that happens, then the fulfillment will come to what we just read in Hosea, where death has no more victory, where the grave has no more sting. And then Paul, as he always does in his law versus grace theology, says in verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gave us the victory, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the ransom, but because he paid the ransom, we will one day either burst up out of our graves, or if we're alive and remaining, we will be instantaneously changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, as quickly as that, we go from mortal to immortal. I'm really looking forward to this. Now would be good. I'm perfectly willing to do that right now. But Paul tells us that's what Hosea is getting at here. Back to Hosea. God says, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. Though he flourishes among the reeds, in other words, even though he grows well, an east wind will come. The wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness, and his fountain will become dry, and his spring will be dried up, and it will plunder his treasury of every precious article. In other words, he's going to be swept out of his land. And it's going to be like a dryness. Remember, this is a desert area. And then God says, and every good and precious thing they have is going to be plundered out from under them. Samaria will be held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women will be ripped open. Terrible language. Horrifying language. And if the book had stopped right there, then we could say, well, that's what the prophets say. God's done with Israel. Fortunately, chapter 14 exists. And just like he did in the first chapter where he said, you're not going to be my people, you're going to be scattered, and I'm not going to have mercy on you, God then turns and says, in the place where you're not my people, you'll be called the sons of the living God. I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm going to gather you the way I scattered you. I'm going to bring you back from all the places I scattered you. I'm going to bring you back into your land. Chapter 14, verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say this to him. I find this fascinating, by the way. God recognizes that these people are incapable of thinking of the right thing to say. They're so depraved, they're so incapable, that God says, do this, return, and then when you return, say this. Here's your words. These are the words you need to say. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all our iniquity and receive us graciously. Look at that word. 
even back in the Old Testament, how was salvation accomplished? By grace. By grace. Never by words. Never by works. Never by somebody keeping the law so perfectly that God was obligated to save them. All the law ever did, according to Paul's theology, was make people guilty. But salvation is always a result of God doing the redeeming, God paying the ransom, God taking people up from Sheol, changing them and giving them immortal, perfect bodies, and doing it in such a way that neither the grave nor Sheol have any power anymore, and God can mock them and say, where is your sting? Where is your power? I have control over death, hell, and the grave. And so he says, go to God and say to him, take away my iniquity. Receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. This is, again, interesting. Not bring me oxen, bring me lambs, kill birds, bring me blood. What God ultimately wants in response to his grace is that you speak well of him. Bring him the fruit of your lips, praise, worship. Instead of kissing the calf. Come and worship God and say good things about God. Extol the virtues of God. Praise and worship God. The fruit of your lips is what God is looking for. Take away our iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. Come to the realization that, remember how this all began. Who were the lovers that they were chasing after? Remember the way they described them. There was some pretty um, racy language in this book, as God described the lovers from Assyria and how they were um, manly men. I'll just leave it like that. And you're going to have to realize that no man, no nation, no king, nobody can save you except God himself. So go and worship God. Give him the fruit of your lips, recognizing that Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God to the work of our hands. We're going to go back and we're going to worship the real God. We're going to worship Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And no longer will we say the words, our God, to things we made, to idols to calves. Nor will we say our God to the work of our hands, for in thee the orphan finds mercy. Remember how this began? Call them no mercy. (laughs) Call them scattered no mercy. Then not my people. And God says, in me the orphan finds mercy. Come to me. I will heal their apostasy. That phrase alone is enough to blow all the Israel church replacement theology out of the water. Because everybody who argues that the church has replaced Israel, or that the church is spiritual Israel, or that the church is getting the promises of Israel in some spiritual way, all argue that the reason God gave up on Israel was because of their apostasy. And here in Hosea, God says, I'll heal their apostasy. Now, at the beginning of the book, do you remember what happened in chapter 2? God went and built a hedge through Hosea around Gomer so she couldn't go to her lovers anymore. 
hedged her about so that she had no other choice but him. So that when she finally recognized her punishment, when she recognized her nakedness, when she got hungry, she finally said, I'll return to my husband. Okay, well, here we are at the end of the book, and God is saying, Israel's coming back to me. I am the cure for what ails them, and I will heal their apostasy. Why? Because they can't do it. What could Israel do? After everything they had done against him, how much good could they do? How many bulls had to die? How long did the stream of lamb necks have to be for them to make up for the depth of their depravity against him? They couldn't do it. And had God left them in that condition and that position, they would surely be judged, and the Abrahamic covenant would have been a lie. And God says, I'll heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. So God does everything necessary to restore the relationship, and they did none of it, because they couldn't, they can't. God not only says, come to me, and I would argue that that's an effectual call. <laughs> God says to Israel, you're mine, come to me. And then he says, and when you come to me, talk like this. And don't bring me animals, don't bring me sacrifice, don't bring me blood, bring me the fruit of your lips. Say good things about me, and I'll heal you. I'll fix you. I'll heal your apostasy. I will love you. I love the, the description there. I will love you freely. I'll love you because I want to love you. Despite everything you've done, despite how you are, I will love you because that is my nature and my character as the God who chose you, as the God who made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will love you freely, not based on anything within you, not based on any accomplishment of yours, I will love you freely, for my anger has turned away from you. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. He will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout, and his beauty will be like the olive tree, and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain and they will blossom like the vine. This is part of the overarching theology of God's dealings with Israel. Once God restores Israel, not only is that going to bring peace to the planet, because the Prince of Peace is ruling from Jerusalem, but all of the nations, almost like Reagan trickle-down economics, all of the nations around them are all going to benefit from having Israel in their midst. And so all those that are even in their shadow are going to again raise grain. They're going to blossom like a vine. The renown of Israel will be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, says verse 8, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but the transgressors will stumble in them. And that's how the book ends. It ends with promises of restoration. 
Promises of restoration that reach all the way into death, hell, and the grave. Promises of restoration based on grace. Promises of restoration based on a ransom paid. Promises of restoration based on God's faithfulness to his own promises. And this is Israel he's talking to. Not only does it tell us a great deal about the God we're dealing with and give us a great deal of hope and confidence knowing that that same God is remarkably patient with us, for which I am very, very grateful. But it also must establish our theology where Israel is concerned. It has to. If you come to a different conclusion, then you're not being biblically consistent. You're making stuff up. You're being extra biblical. I like the fact that Hosea ends with whoever's wise, let him understand these things. There's a whole lot of people out there who just don't seem to understand these things and uh, present themselves as quite wise. Next time we get together, you all will get together next Wednesday. Micah will be bringing a message next Wednesday. I don't like the idea that church can't be open just because Jim can't be here. So now that we've reestablished our midweek services, I want us to keep going no matter what. If at some point I have to be away, hopefully this week once we get mom settled, this will be a more permanent setting. But if I have to be away and you all get together and pray, Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, I want the doors of this building open and I want the saints gathering here, whether I'm here or not. And so next week, Micah will be here. And then when we come back, we will begin either Amos or Micah. And I haven't decided which, although I'm leaning toward Amos. (laughs) To which Micah goes, oh, we'll get to Micah. But part of my thinking is, just so you know, Hosea was to the northern kingdom. And so is Amos. And Micah, even though he's in the northern kingdom, is mostly prophesying toward the southern kingdom. And so since we're right at that Jeroboam, the second moment in Second Kings, I want to deal with the northern kingdom stuff and put Hosea and, and Amos side by side. We might even, before we go back to Second Kings, take a few weeks and go through Jonah, just because now that we have a context for it, I think you'll see it differently. And then ultimately back to Second Kings, we'll finish that up. And by then, Jesus ought to be here. That's all I can think. If not, we'll just keep going. Did you enjoy the book of Hosea? Yes. Was it worth the effort and the time? I hope it helped establish your theology. And like I said, as we continue through Matthew on Sunday mornings, we're going to bump into more of this Israel language that I hope to demonstrate is consistent with everything the prophets have said. It all ties together, you know, almost like there was one author of all 66 books. And there is. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.